Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, and it's my privilege to welcome you to today's special event, Exploring the Chilling Tide of Abuse Faced by Women Journalists. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Indigenous peoples of the land that we are on today. While we meet on a virtual platform, we would like to take a moment to recognize the importance of the land that we each call home. The Canadian Journalism Foundation's office is situated on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and we are privileged to live and work in these territories. The CJF is thrilled to be presenting this important discussion today in collaboration with two partners, CBC Radio Canada's Not OK campaign and the Canadian Women's Foundation. We are grateful for their support in bringing this conversation to our national audience. To say a few words about today's event, it is my pleasure to welcome a longtime friend and supporter of the CJF's work, Barbara Williams, Executive Vice President, English Services for CBC. Thank you, Natalie, for that kind introduction and for organizing today's conversation. I'm so sorry I can't be with you in person, but in fact, as this tape is playing, I'm actually across town speaking live at a CBC event. So apparently it really is true. You just can't be in places at once. But never mind that. As she always does, Natalie has pulled together an incredible panel to discuss a hugely important topic. And while I'm admittedly a little biased, you also have a wonderful moderator in CBC's own Salima Shivji. You know, as Canada's public broadcaster, CBC Radio Canada has the unique responsibility to reflect all the diverse cultures, languages and perspectives of Indigenous peoples and of all people in Canada. And we do this by seeking aged journalists from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives. But unfortunately, as we all know too well, Indigenous, racialized, and LGBTQ2 media professionals often face the greatest abuse for simply doing their jobs. And that is so not okay. We protect all media professionals and their crews from harassment and violence. And then separate from the physical and verbal abuse, the attacks on journalists are systemic, designed to intimidate and dissuade independent fact-based reporting and part of growing efforts to undermine democracy and democratic institutions. But encouragingly, in Canada and around the world, we're seeing momentum to stop these attacks. In fact, over the last 13 months, journalists Maria Rasa and Dmitry Muratov were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. 37 Canadian news media organizations came together to release a joint statement condemning online harassment of journalists. More than 40 public broadcasters and media associations from around the world signed the Brussels Declaration, demonstrating their commitment to supporting media professionals' safety and freedom of the press. And today's conversation is situated in this truly global movement, all part of the ongoing work to combat online harassment. CBC Radio Canada is deeply committed to working with other media to raise awareness of the issue and most urgently to propose concrete steps to reduce it. Sadly, despite a lot of positive intentions and initiatives, the abuse continues, so we can't let up for a second. We must ensure we're doing everything we can to protect journalists, because enough is enough. And coming together as we are, 
will ultimately foster a safer, stronger media. Thank you again for the invitation to start things off today. It's such an important issue. And okay, now back to you, Natalie. Thank you, Barbara. A reminder that our discussion today is an hour long and you can still submit questions for our speakers at any time via the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, our hashtag is journalism matters. According to research from the Coalition for Women in Journalism, Canada is the country where the most female journalists were exposed to organized troll campaigns this year. In conjunction with the 16 Days of Action Against Gender-Based Violence, our guests today will share their insights on online harm against women journalists, the challenges they face in doing their work, and perspectives on solutions and supporting others in the industry. A note before we introduce our panel, today's discussion may include topics or graphic details that are difficult for some of our viewers. We encourage our audience to take care of your mental health and well-being. I am delighted to introduce our panel. Joining us from Toronto, Garvia Bailey is the co-founder of Media Girlfriends. Also here in Toronto, we have Saba Aitasaz, the co-host and producer of Toronto Star's daily news podcast, This Matters. And in Calgary, independent journalist and the winner of the CJF and Canadian Women's Foundation's 2022 Landsberg Award, Christina Frangu. We are honored to have them with us. You're in great hands today leading this conversation. Please welcome from in Vancouver, Salima Shivji, the India correspondent for CBC News. She will soon be heading to Mumbai to CBC's permanent bureau to cover important stories from the region and what they mean for Canada. Salima, over to you. Thank you so much, Natalie, and I am really pleased to be part of this conversation. Such a timely one when you see, of course, how the social media landscape is evolving, uh, or perhaps devolving is a better word for what's happening in that space. And when you see the extent of online hate that's been directed at journalists, of course, uh, predominantly journalists, uh, female journalists, and more often than not female journalists of color, and how that hate is really being amplified, you know, death threats, racial slurs, misogynistic attacks. Uh, so all of us here, myself and the three amazing uh, journalists on the panel, Saba, Christina, Garvia, we've, we've all had to handle hate thrown our way simply for doing our jobs We've had to handle that hate to varying degrees and through various means, but it's certainly not isolated and it's getting worse, as you heard uh, from what Natalie said. You know, when you hear that more than 72% of journalists say that they were the victim of some form of harassment last year, that's a pretty alarmingly high figure. So we're going to delve into, I hope, how we cope and, and, and some of the solutions that news outlets are, are thinking of. But I want to start by getting a sense of the type of hate that we're seeing and the extent of it, sort of the intensity of it in this current climate. And so I want to start with you, Saba, uh, if you don't mind. You've spoken out about being targeted, about becoming the subject of you know, a seemingly highly organized hate campaign targeting you and several other uh, journalists in Canada. Can you give us an idea of the type of vitriol that you received and sort of the scale of it and what it was like going through that. Right. Uh, thanks a lot, Salima. I just want to start with, I usually have started, uh, you know, conversations with apologies, which I shouldn't have to, but I do because trauma strips you of your words and your story. And um, if there are, you know, pauses in, in what I'm saying, or if I segue into another part of the conversation, um, I, I do apologize for that. I also want to start with saying that I have forgotten what safe looks and feels like 
for me, which is ironic because I came to Canada to be safe. I have now effectively uh, been the target of hate in two countries. Uh, I, I was an international journalist in Pakistan, and I have experienced all of what I'm experiencing right now before in the form of a systemic and malicious uh, cyber campaign against me. The violence uh, was because of a, a lot of human rights reporting that I've done, uh, which a lot of totalitarian forces in Pakistan and hypernationalist forces in Pakistan do not like. Um, I, that violence eventually, because it carried on with such impunity, uh, trickled into my real life. Uh, my car was ambushed. I have been given acid attack threats. Uh, I was afraid for my life and eventually had no choice but to come here. Uh, so Canada, for a lot of journalists who are, you know, uh, in countries where this kind of, um, you know, repression or freedom of uh, journalism is going on, has is supposed to be a haven and a safe space. So it's sad to see that we are having this conversation here. It's sad to see the CFWIJ numbers on online hate uh, in Canada. So I and my colleagues have basically been exhausted. Uh, it's been more than two years of uh, this, this wave, like you mentioned, Salima, uh, started last fall. Uh, it started almost after uh, Maxine Bernier's tweet talking about uh, journalists, doxing certain journalists, and basically um, talking about uh, you know, uh, playing dirty with journalists. And since then, we've seen a lot of political figures uh, legitimize this message. We did not get any of the support and amplification and conversations that we are seeing now. Uh, last year, it, it was left to a lot of uh, racialized journalists who were undergoing the trauma of what was happening to them to get together to try to understand that there is a pattern here to collect the data, uh, you know, to, to start conversations about it. What I'm getting, I can I can tell you that it has nothing to do with my work. It's not a critique on my reporting. It has everything to do with my gender, uh, my identity, uh, my race, um, and um, where I'm from. I don't want to read any of that out because I think that I've tweeted about it enough. It's um, you know in a in a lot of publications for people to see. But the kind of graphic language and threats that are used on my person are almost physical in nature. Everything feels like every word feels like a, a slap in the face. We already know that you know online violence and online abuse has the same effect on your mental health, on you know your physical health as actual uh, physical trauma. I have been told to go back to my country. I've been told to either leave the, the uh, journalism or my or, or, or Canada and go back to where I'm from. I have uh, last year received a very graphic death threat, uh, which uh, through an encrypted email. So most of these threats are coming in through encrypted emails to uh, me and my colleagues. I was told that I would be put in a burqa, uh, put on my knees and executed with an AR-15 to the back of my head in a stadium full of cheering white men in purple garments. Uh, that was the first time when uh, we had to reach out to uh, file a complaint with the police because that was a death threat. Since then, uh, these um, threats have gotten worse. They usually happen very well-timed on a Friday. So I have a lot of time to think about it over the weekend uh, when I get to when I'm supposed to have my time off. Um, this year, uh, we got I got an email which actually mentioned two other journalists, Erica Ifill of the Hill Times and Rachel Gilmore of Global News, and it talked about having our faces uh, on an, on a on a wall where. Um, the group was planning to, was deciding who to silence, who to retire, and who to rape, and also told us to quit our journalism, or we will be boogalooed the F out of Canada. 
Um, and that's when we decided that we just can't keep taking this backlash, swinging to our newsroom and individually, you know, trying to deal with this problem. And I think that's where we kind of led to a, a collaborative uh, newsroom led effort where we had Global News, Hill Times and the Toronto Star kind of get together uh, to figure out what needs to be done about this wave of hate. So you touched on so much there, and I want to get into all of that and, and, and pick it out in terms of obviously forgetting what safe looks like. I want to get to that in a second, though. First, I want to talk a, a little bit about what you said about how organized it was, right? You talked about, you know, these encrypted emails um, and, and, and how sort of sophisticated the online attacks have become in a way. And, and I'll get back to you, Saba, but I also want to bring in... Garvia and Christina into the conversation, when you guys hear that and the extent to which people go to send this hate towards journalists and journalists of, of color, I, I guess, how do you explain that? How do you feel about where this is going and what's fueling this type of hate in this country, uh, in, in Canada in particular? Maybe, maybe Garvia, you can take that one first. Um, first, I, I just want to um, uh, reach out through this this means to all of the journalists uh saba to hear and to witness what you and so many other journalists over the the um and it's not even over the last two years it's become more virulent over the last few years for sure but this is a and this is ongoing it's something that um especially since the birth of uh social media and being and it being a part of your job to be on in those spaces. Um, it's just, it's just completely, um, it's a chill, it sets a, a chilling effect on anyone, any woman who uh, feels like they'd like to speak out or have something to say, or even in support of the journalists and uh, the women in their circles to say anything. And I think that's the point of these coordinated attacks is, is to silence and silence through the means of terror. Um, and you are able to terrorize enough women, enough journalists into, um, into being silent uh, then that's a part of the whole, I don't know what you want to call it, culture war or media war or information war. Um, it's a form of warfare. And, um, and what I've seen and witnessed, um, and luckily over the last while have not had to experience, but the feeling, the residuals do the same thing. Uh, they're they're chilling. You don't want to um, to um, step too uh, boldly into that public sphere, and that's and and that is kind of the point of this this sort of uh, coordinated attack. Um, so that's the way that that's the way that I have witnessed it witnessed it over over the last little while is I see amongst my friends who are all in the journalism and media world that the conversations that we want to be having publicly we only have privately because of this chilling effect because of what we've seen uh, journalists like uh, Erica and Saba and etc etc go through and that's not what we came into this um 
into journalism for. That's not what, that's not why we're here. We came here to be clarions and to, to be the, the ones that people can come to and that we can, um, you know, uh, be here to, to, to speak our truth and to speak the truth of, of whatever's going on, on, on the ground. And this is just a great way to, to silence that. So that's the way that I've been feeling through it. I'm, I'm not sure about you, Christina, but this has been um, horrific to witness. It has. I don't. I don't think I've been on the screen, but I've been sort of a nodding uh, energetically here in my office, agreeing with you. And it's chilling is the right word. It's just. It's been shocking to see what has happened. And and I want to start by sort of saying to Saba, Erica, and Rachel, and and everyone who's been in the crosshairs of these attacks, your work has been tremendous given what you have been under. And I think that needs to be recognized, like the quality of work that these journalists are doing despite these ongoing attacks that I know keep wearing people down and make it difficult to say anything. And you know, we watch what's happening in other countries and people talking about physical attacks on journalists and journalists being put in, put in prison and, and um, more sort of organized attacks from a state level to, to stop the act of journalism. But this is, this is censorship as well. And it's very hard to speak out. And we did see journalists who spoke out in support of, of women journalists, journalists of color. We saw, you know, the attacks just grow the number of people that, that um, were sort of in their crosshairs and, that, and that's wrong. And, and I would like to see all of us sort of speaking out and that's that's freelancers that's newsrooms that's people outside the world of journalism to say that this this is wrong because this work is really important yeah that's interesting christina you, you talked about speaking out and the importance of speaking out but of course that that is also so difficult when you're dealing with trauma and when you when you're trying to cope and you're trying to actually continue doing your jobs uh, and, and I want to get at that. I, I want to talk, you know, about specific help from news organizations and what managing editors do uh, in a minute. But, but first, I want to just talk personally, uh, you know, you know, Saba, how do you deal with that hate? And what are the sort of coping mechanisms that you've developed along the way you talked about, you know, joining a little bit with some others who are going through it? How do you develop a path to keep going and to keep doing this job when it gets so difficult and, and you're being bombarded with some of that online hate? I think a lot of it is, um, you know, I think journalists are conditioned. It's our trauma response to keep operating on muscle memory. Um, I think for, I can't speak to everybody um, because everybody has a different coping mechanism and why they continue to do this work. I also know that there are people, journalists in much more perilous uh, job positions than me uh, who are much more vulnerable, uh, freelancers, people who do not have newsroom-led initiatives, like supporting them in whatever manner, which we should also talk about, but, you know, they don't even have that. And they are self-censoring. They are uh, moving away from journalism. They are not there to tell important stories that are a part of the Canadian narrative. You already talk about the underrepresentation in the Canadian media landscape. And now there's an, a concerted effort being made right in front of us uh, to push those really important voices out. So to answer your question, like a lot of people are not coping well. I um, I think continue on muscle memory. I work uh, in this job because I have seen that the stories that we tell, um, the facts 
that we talk about or disseminate, they matter. They matter more than ever now in this post, uh, it's not a post-pandemic world, but a pandemic world where polarization has led to, um, you know, a global movement of sort of fueling, you know, uh, hyper-nationalist or or, uh, hate-filled groups. And when we talk about polarization and we say Canada has seen a lot of, uh, you know, sort of disenchantment uh, since the anti-masking movement happened, since the Ottawa uh, convoy happened, it's not the majority of Canadians. It's actually specific far-right um, groups that have fueled that confusion, that have fueled that uh, time of uh, uh, disenfranchisement for many to uh, build up on their hate campaigns to silence and erase people like us. Um, so I've seen the greatest price that can be paid if we stop working at a time like that in Pakistan, where important voices uh, in journalism have been pushed out, have are in exile like me, have been assassinated, have been abducted. And um, when there is an information vacuum, who takes over that vacuum? It's bad players. It's people uh, who want to manipulate reality and manipulate the facts to, to uh, exert more totalitarianism or problematic structures. Uh, so I don't want that to happen. And also, I, I, I refuse to cede my space. I've never seated my space uh, for uh, any, um, you know, to any kind of authoritarianism or bullying. Um, so I, I'm motivated by that. But it's not really coping. I'm just going on, you know, because when we talk about the trauma from this stuff, it's not, we always associated with like, you know, mental or emotional well-being, but a trauma plays a huge, uh, has a huge impact on your physical being. And, you know, you burn out, uh, you get sick. Uh, you know, we also, there are intersectional issues here. We talk about journalists, the disproportionality of, you know, uh, journalists of color burning out or quiet quitting or leaving this industry. And it's all kind of related to that. So, um, yeah, so that's that's how I'm coping, but uh, not everybody is. Yeah, I think that's an important point to mention. Uh, not everybody is, and it, it, coping is one thing. Right. Uh, and I think all of us were nodding when you talked about the, the wider effects of uh, when a burnout of, of, you know, feeling dispirited when you see what's happening to the industry and, and the online hate that's that's taking over in some cases. Uh, I, I want to throw it to you, Garvia. Um, what how, how do you sort of cope with where you see this going? You know, you've worked a long time in this industry. You've been with legacy media and worked on your own as well. So when you, when you see the direction it's going in, I, I guess, what are sort of those coping mechanisms that you may use? And, and I'll get to you, Christina, in a second with a similar question. Garvia, what do you think? I think it, um, it's, it's just so important for us to be able to band together and to find our communities um, within, uh, within, ourselves within within our our, our groupings of, of especially um, you know racialized journalists women, women of color uh, or uh, just uh, women journalists in general that has been the uh, for any kind of, of trauma that that I've been through it has been uh, those groups that that I can go to the groups of um, of journalists that have become a part of my social circle that, um, that are integral to my own mental health. Um, and so having those, uh, those supports is just, is, is crucial. Like if you don't have those supports, 
please reach out, like reach out to me. Like I, I want to be, you know, a support to as many as possible. I mean, um, Media Girlfriends was birthed out of that, uh, out of the need for us to come together and be, and be each other's support. So that's, that's, that's one way to cope um, that, uh, that has worked for me over the years. Yeah, that support system, obviously very important. Uh, but when you're when you're a freelancer, when you're on your own, things change a little bit with your support system as well. Uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't, um, Christina, I want to throw that to you. You work as a freelancer. I mean, how does that sort of inform um, the jobs you perhaps choose to take or, or how you weigh situations uh, when you know that sometimes you don't have a big uh, media organization behind you and, 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 you know, a colleague that you can call and, and be intimately involved in the story with. For sure. Well, I will, I will say that I think this has changed the way freelancers talk among themselves and look after each other. And um, we do have some organized support groups, but, or groups, but we also have very informal sort of groups of friends that look after each other. And I would also say if there's anybody watching this who is freelancing and who is struggling and is trying to figure out what you say and what you don't say and how to, how to take on these challenges, please reach out. We are, we have a good group of freelancers in Canada, especially those of us who have been at this a, a long, long time. And we're, we're going to keep working to make sure that we're looking after as many freelancers here as possible. So for me, I've been at, I've been a freelancer for, for almost 20 years. So a, a really long time. And, you know, when, when I started, the problems you would have is sort of like, a, you know, one source that, that, or, or one person that just kept calling you, maybe kept emailing you. And that was kind of it. But now Mm -hmm. it's part of your job as a freelancer is also marketing yourself. And it's commenting on things. It's like doing the work to make sure that people share your stories. And it means that people learn more about you and they learn more about your networks. And so I have to be careful about what I say about my family and who I'm connected Mm -hmm. to and where I might be. If I'm working on a story and I am going into a place by myself, I always make sure that someone someone knows. Um, I have sort of a, a, a system that someone sort of will call after a certain amount of time and, and check in just to make sure that I'm okay. And I also pick my assignments a little differently. If I think I'm in territory um, that that's uncomfortable for me in some ways, I make sure I'm working with an editor I know I can trust. And you will learn who those editors are, who stand up for you, who check in with you. I do a lot of writing and stories that that like of people who have just just sort of been through hell and hell and back, like spending a lot of time with people in some of their worst moments. And you need to make sure that you have a, a, a team around you that that knows how to look after you in in that situation. And so there's a lot of political stories I don't touch because I it's not to me worth the risk. That said, you know, I do I do a lot in sort of vaccinations and gender-based violence, and and both of these sort of open the door um, to a whole bunch of emails that I I really would not like to receive. But that's that's the trade-off I make. I'm constantly talking though to other writers and to editors about do you think this risk is worth it? What would you do if this happened? And then when we see someone sort of being slammed online we tend to, I tend to reach out and I know other people do that to me just to make sure, are you okay? 
you talked about not doing some stories, like not doing some of those political stories because uh, of, of the risk involved. I mean, would you do those stories if that risk wasn't there? Is that, is that a loss in your career in a way? Um, I, don't, I don't know if those stories aren't, are a loss, but there are things I don't take on within the world of health or I, I wouldn't sort of say in marketing stories. And that probably, probably has an effect on my career. Um, I'm, I don't have institutional support. And we've seen sort of frivolous lawsuits against, you know, um, staff reporters, against freelancers, against scientists. And, and so I have to be a little bit careful about what I'm going to say, because I don't have the institutional support to back me up if someone decided they just wanted to throw me under the bus. Yeah, and that's important, I think, just to think about, obviously, it does have an effect on your career, even if it's not as overt it affects you internally, right? When you're sort of handling these things and dealing with the hate thrown your way. Uh, so we've been talking about support systems from, from people, from colleagues, um, um, but I, I wanna get into how much support is there from larger news organizations when you're you're going through something uh, so major. So, so Saba, um, you know, we've seen some uh, of obviously CBC, Radio Canada, a lot of other news outlets banding together and kind of talking about certain solutions and how to how to sort of tackle this. What do you see uh, happening out there from the larger news outlets to tackle the online hate that that you that you were going that you're still going through? Um, right. I actually want to start with saying that I we need to just um, clear this sort of distinction between freelancers and like people who are working for the organization. If a freelancer is doing a story for you, they've pitched it, you've commissioned it. They're basically a part of your organization. Um, they are um, deserving of the same protocols, of the same support, and the same safety. And it doesn't. It shouldn't be on a case to case basis. Like, oh, maybe I'll get a good editor, or maybe I'll, I'll get a good team. This should be entrenched in the newsroom protocol. Um, we have seen how problematic this is. Um, um, Salima, you're you know setting up the uh, Delhi Bureau, and I've worked in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and the way stringers and and fixers are treated over there, who are at the front line, who are risking their lives, basically doing a lot of the story, we know how the dynamics work, bringing in that nuance, and then they are the most vulnerable once, uh, you know, an international journalist does their story, they finish it off, and they leave the country, uh, leaving them behind um, to, to deal with that. So, Freelancers and their rights and how they're part of the mainstream organization that there should should be a conversation. Um, in terms of support, I think we've come a little bit further from you know I've heard from journalists here from before who said, well, you know, I used to get a check-in call from my manager and that was it uh, because that is not uh, the way uh, to move forward with this. Since then, I think since last year there were a lot of newsrooms working on ways to protect their journalists but they were working in siloized environments i think this year when uh, you know this happened i think for the first time erica i and rachel kind of got together in each other's dms you know and we started talking about this and then we reached out to and erica is, is a freelancer uh, by the way uh, but it, it should never have come up and it never came up as a conversation because we were all journalists working for our respective organizations uh, we did get our newsroom like senior leadership together on this to work out collaborations because the only way we're going to be able to protect our journalists systemically is through collaborating with other newsrooms um, getting best practices uh, from those who might be leading on this a little bit and uh, just one point that I have to make is like there's 
you know, there can be some stories that you can stop doing or your, you know, editor could protect you from like, maybe this is a story that can imperil you. But that doesn't apply to everybody as a racialized journalist, mm-hmm. you know, um, the mere fact that I'm existing on this space, the mere fact that I look the way I do and I and I speak the way I speak uh, is enough uh, for uh, uh, these attacks to happen to me when this recent wave of um, uh hate came towards me, I actually had disassociated from my social media because I was so exhausted. And the least I I did was just like promote my episode, like, you know, just like retweet it or something. Yet the hate kept coming. So it's not even about how much should I censor myself or uh, which stories should I not cover or cover. It's basically about me being silenced and erased and just drawing back into the curtains or the sidelines. So, I mean, that doesn't help. And um, I think journalists, need to come up with an internal system for tracking for because before that they used to just um, I think there were the CBC and a couple of other organizations started quarantining some of these hate mails but at the same time there needs to be a tracking mechanism because uh, when it's a danger of this kind when it's a systematic and organized threat I think journalists need to be vigilant and they need to see what kind of what the nature of the threat is whether they need to assess their safety Uh, so we need to see the content it can't just be like blocked out of sight out of mind so um, what the Toronto Star did this, in this respect is that we do have now a quarantine in place because a lot of our journalists were being targeted, but then there's like a buffer zone so we can mentally prepare. So there's a senior editor um, who basically gets those emails. So I feel bad for them. Uh, and then they get in touch with whichever journalists have been mentioned and they say, well, this has come and would you like to, to see it? So that kind of creates a mental protection, gives you a beat to prepare. And then it's up to you whether you want to see it or not. I have not yet met any uh journalists who don't want to know, uh, you know, the kinds of threats that are coming at them and to prepare. Um, Secondly, I feel like there need to be internally peer-led efforts, because when I was at the BBC, we have a practice called TRIM, which is a trauma response um, management system, where our peers, our colleagues are uh, trained to assess uh, you know, do like a small questionnaire, uh, assess for trauma, for the impacts of something bad that's happened to another reporter. And then they can advocate for their colleagues and for their peers to like maybe get the time off that they need, maybe, you know, have a better work-life balance or just like have a better working conditions uh, as they're going through this. So I think that's something we should be seeing within our newsrooms as well. And thirdly, I think what we just saw this year was something really important where we had, um, you know, three uh, newsrooms basically uh, getting together to figure out how do stakeholders, you know, get pressurized around the world when we talk about hate, you know, this kind of polarization and this kind of online hate, uh, we do see like a collaboration of stakeholders trying to figure out a solution. So I think more ventures like the collective message that was sent out by 48 organizations organizations uh, to all stakeholders that this is a serious threat. It's not an attack against one journalist. This is not an isolated incident. This is not some person in their basement sending us messages. This uh, looks like an an incredibly hostile and and systemic, apparently systemic campaign, and uh, that these news organizations consider that an attack on journalism and on the press and not just Mm -hmm. that individual journalist, and they'll stand together to to find uh, solutions for that. So I think these are some of the things that have started. I think a lot more still needs to be done um Mm -hmm. but it's a start can i just say that oh sorry um that i felt like uh through this process all of these things all of these um these uh these responses from uh news organizations it was frustrating to see how slowly that happened and that and the fact that it came from it wasn't a sort of a top-down uh, uh, response. 
It was those that were being targeted that said, this is what needs to be done. And I can't help but feel like that was a failing and a lack of um, vision in terms of how you lead a news organization. And as much as we can can celebrate and laud uh, organizations for doing the work, um, the work should have done been been done and ready and ready because we saw this coming. It wasn't like this this these sorts of attacks came out of nowhere. So um, I hope that some of the initiatives that Saba was was talking about that are happening at the BBC. It doesn't take more attacks and an ex- escalation for um, for some of these initiatives to to actually uh, be implemented in a timely fashion. Not not having these journalists not only advocate not do the work of journalism, but then have to advocate for their own safety and have to bang on doors to say you need to do something as an organization to protect me and my fellow journalists. That to me is is somewhat unacceptable. Um, and I'd love to see uh, the responses just be um, a little bit more less reactionary and and with a little bit more vision and thought and care. And I just want to quickly add that it took us a really long time to even convince like uh, newsrooms and other stakeholders that this was some kind of a pattern and this was a systemic um, campaign of some sort. Everybody was treating it like an isolated incident. Initially, you know, like uh, Garvia said, we had to get together, make these sort of databases to to prove our point. And it's exhausting. Like you're already dealing with this backlash of like hate and uh, and you know the, the trauma that comes with it, and then you're like dealing with believability or trying to explain to like newsroom leadership uh, why this is a problem and and what it's doing to you. And I think it's also really important to have adequate representation in you know senior executive positions in newsrooms because it makes a difference for somebody to understand the nuance of like what my experience as a racialized person is. And when somebody is making a specific reference to a burqa or they're talking about a stadium execution, what the, you know, the relevance there is, they're talking about like, it's a Taliban reference, right? It's the things that you need to uh, have to explain because, you know, there have been times um, when I've had to explain to certain people, like, they're like, how is this a threat? Like, I don't think this is actually, uh, you know, maybe it's just, and, and then I've had to kind of explain the context and the nuance of it. And it would really make a difference if you had people who understand that experience and who had that nuance already in those senior positions to advocate for us. And I'll add that there are organizations in Canada who uh, the bylines that appear on their in their pages are primarily freelancers and they have yet to sign the letter from the Canadian Association yeah. of Journalists. And I, I would love to see them there because these are these are the the names of the people that are, are you know doing these stories and the people who are most likely to be targeted. So the the easiest thing you could do is sign your name to this letter in in support, um, knowing that the people who are doing the work in your pages are are freelancers. The other thing is you know in terms of what what can happen with emails, like sure a newsroom can have someone come through and sort of go through them. You don't have that as a freelancer, but I would love to see magazines and newspapers, if you bought a story from a freelancer and it results in them sort of being inundated with these these hate messages, give them IT supports to help get them through this because it's a lot to manage on our our own. 
Um, and the other thing I think is that what we're seeing in freelancer contracts is a little bit frightening to me. Like we're seeing, you know, these sweeping changes to, to sort of moral rights and indemnity clauses. And that means that you know, there's going to be at, at some point, someone is going to say, I don't want my name on that. But if they don't have sort of moral rights on that story, the story could go out edited with their name on it. And they know the journalists will know that's about to expose them to a whole bunch of, of attacks, but there's nothing they can do about it. And so I think that magazines and newspapers can start to make changes at the contract level that gives more protection to journalists and leaves them a little less vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Just to expand a bit more on the, on the idea of support, uh, what about people who are watching um, watching this unfold and say they want to help or they they're there to support you? How how would you guide them towards um, real and concrete support instead of perhaps empty words like "I'm here for you"? Does that mean much if it's not backed up by something? Uh, Garvia, maybe you want to you want to take that one. Well, you know, I think the question that everyone that is watching these things as they unfold, colleagues, friends, who, whoever, you, you see it happening on, on, on social media, you, you see it with your own eyes. And then you have to ask the question, how much discomfort will I tolerate in service to what I stand for? So you can say to yourself, um, you can, you know, hit a like button. Lovely. Great. What is the discomfort that you will tolerate to actually change this? Will you go and walk into a newsroom yourself and knock on your managing editor's door and say that this is intolerable and I can't stand for this as someone that might have, you know, what we're dealing with is a lot of power dynamics that are bubbling to the surface that, and this is, um, this is, this is a part of that, but it's also, um, those power dynamics, we're seeing them in play as the reactions to these sorts of situations unfold, right? So you know who has power in a newsroom, you know who has power in, in the, the transactional part of journalism when we see how these things unfold. So those people that, that talk about allyship and that, that want to be a part of the solution what is it that you will tolerate in becoming uncomfortable in the privilege that you have of being just you and not having to think about if I tweet in support of this, what's going to come back at me for the next two weeks, three weeks, year? Am I going to have to think about trauma, my own trauma? If I tweet this support of this one thing, there's a lot of people that are sitting in our newsrooms that don't have to think about that at all. They just do whatever. So I think that the challenge is to say to those that have that sort of power and that kind of privilege, what is it that you're willing to, to do? How much of your neck are you willing to put on the line to support your colleagues that are doing this hard work? You never have to think about it when you wake up. If I tweet this thing or if I support this little thing, I do it all the time. I'm just about to hit like or just about to type something and then I erase it all because I don't want the heat. So who will take the heat for us? 
And I think that those are the hard questions that, that, that individuals have to ask themselves. Will you be willing to talk in a, in a way and be very vocal in a way that's not performative? So that sort of leads into one of the audience questions. I, we are taking questions from, from folks out there and, and you did touch on this, Garvia, but I'll give this one to Christina. This is from Brent who says, as a male journalist, how do I support my women colleagues in journalism or my friends as they're going through this? What's the best way to do it? I mean, Garvia did touch on that, but what do you think, Christina? Well, I think Garvia is brilliant. And, and that was exactly exactly the response is, is speak out speak out, speak up and, and show your support. Show you, be, you know, be public in your support, but also be behind the scenes in your, your support. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I could never say it better than Garvia just did. Brilliant, I, yeah, agree. Show your support and, and listen as well, like deeply listen to what's happening. And I think we're, we're doing that here. Uh, so some and I think just reaching out, reaching out to your colleague. Like reach out to your colleague and just, you know, slide into their DMs and say that I see exactly what's happening. And how would you like me to react? Like, do you need me to advocate on your behalf? Do you need me to like, think about what your what the skin that you're in, the power that that, uh, that, that gives you the inherent power, you know, what can I do to advocate on your behalf is something that, that I would love to see more, um, you know, folks like Brent or whoever um, do like, how can I help you? What can I do that is, that is, that is non-performative that will actually help to move the dial on this thing? Absolutely. Um, another audience question, we've several people actually have sent this one in. So I don't have everybody's names because it is a constant. First of all, a lot of people are saying, Kudos and thank you for everybody for being open on this panel and speaking about what you're dealing with. Um, but a lot of people are talking about the police and the police's role in all of this. <clears throat> um, so I'm going to give this one to Saba. You know, uh, a lot of people are asking what sort of help is the police doing? Are, are the police offering? How serious are they when they get somebody's complaints? I mean, you had to report a lot of this on your own and handle that process. What issues do, do you see in how the police are handling this type of online hate directed at, at, at female journalists? So, um, yeah, I think we get this a lot. Um, you know, whenever we talk about being victim to this kind of hate, um, you know, we are told, why didn't you go to the police? The police will help um, get a lot of DMs about that. And I just want to talk about like, uh, what you're sending uh, a victim into, you know, you're telling them they're dealing with this wave of hate and you're asking them to basically sacrifice their time, their sanity, their working hours um, to be a part or to seek help from basically a system that's now outdated, that's not able to keep up with the uh, digital threat that we are facing. And that's also historically, you know, there's a relationship of mistrust with uh, the police system and racialized communities. And you're asking journalists who, uh, to jump through hoops to to report that um you know who are also parents uh you know siblings they have families and let me tell you how much of my life was you know because we decided to become these inadvertent case studies for like what happens um you know if you do report to, to the police most of my i think summer was spent doing this and just working on auto so um all of us were targeted across three jurisdictions that's ottawa edmonton and toronto there were at least 10 journalists who were affected everybody was getting at that time uh, you know because the 
three newsrooms were collaborating. So there was support from editorial and we were asked to report. First of all, the police system does not allow uh, to report these incidents collectively. Like for example, even if your editor who uh, actually wanted to, you know, uh, buffer this situation a little, my editor did. And they said, we can file a report on the behalf of our newsroom because there were so many reporters who were getting these messages. So it's a newsroom problem. The police does not allow for that system. The police wants you to report individually and personally. So how does that go was kind of different across three jurisdictions. It was equally um, gaslighty and dysfunctional, but I think it kind of, the way the interactions built out were different based on how you sounded, uh, what you looked like. I, uh, everybody was on hold with the police for hours and hours. We all reported that we were doing our daily reporting while being on hold for the police, while being bombarded with death and rape threats. I um, I think after several hours got through to a, a police officer who really didn't bother to listen to me. It seemed like the first few sentences out of my mouth were just not, you know, it kind of started making me think, is it my accent? What is it about how I'm conveying this, that this person is not taking me seriously when I'm telling them there are death threats, there is a rape threat. It's been happening since last year. We've already, they have a report filed for a death threat since last year, which they never followed up on. He said something very vague about like, uh, I'll, I'll email you, send me all of this stuff. And, you know, we're going to, uh, uh, these are encrypted emails. They're probably not even from the country. And pretty much every reference in those emails is like a very Canadian reference. And like, he hasn't even looked at it. And he said that. I think uh, my colleagues across the other jurisdictions had similar experiences where um, eventually, like one or two of my colleagues did get reports filed. And then there was this constant weird lack of coordination going on where the Ottawa police kept telling, you know, uh, Rachel, for instance, that the Toronto police is looking into it. Meanwhile, the Toronto police hadn't even filed a case um, or spoken to any of us. And then they pushed it back onto the Ottawa police. And then there was this weird uh, back and forth. I never got a call back. During that time, I received two more horrific threats. Uh, other people were receiving emails with my name in it, uh, with specific ra rape and, and, and death threats. So like other colleagues were getting back to me telling me you've been mentioned in this. I kept sending this person uh, all of those emails. I told him about my perilous status uh, in this country, my security. I begged that I need some guidance as to make myself secure. I was ghosted by this person. I eventually had to amplify this on social media. I still didn't get a call from him. I got a, a, a response from the PR department of the police. Um, it took us, I think, several months, a collective letter signed by 48 organizations, a tweet by Minister Mendocino and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and a letter by him before I got my first reach out from a detective. And I was told that the case had been elevated. By that time, I really didn't have it in me. Uh, to continue the process further because it was so devastating and, and erasing on top of the other things that I was facing. So I feel like there are not only systemic issues, obviously this is, you know, what I think to me systemic discrimination, systemic racism looks like where you're putting so much of your life on hold to try to get some protection from a system that's not prepared or does not have the political will to, to look out for you. But there are also several you know, procedural issues here. They are problems with them understanding how um, encrypted emails or how digital landscapes and the hate that comes from there is an actual threat. Uh, they encourage some of my colleagues to report online. There is actually no category online, no space online to report online threat, which is ironic. So they give you like a place to put up pictures for like hate speech on graffiti or something, but there's no um, 
actual category to report this. And then they were, uh, my colleagues were also told that some of this doesn't meet the legal threshold for a threat. So I don't understand what does. If they're talking about surveilling us, they've talked to a couple of my colleagues have said they've been following them. Uh, they've talked about specifically graphic threats about what they will do. What do I need? Do I need somebody outside my door? Um, uh, wanting to inflict harm before I can call a, a police officer to to ask for protection. So that's that's been our experience. And we are journalists who are aware of the processes, who are able to advocate for ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. Just imagine uh, how it goes for somebody who is not any of those things and is a racialized person trying to report uh, violence. So many struggles in terms of getting um, people to pay attention and, and deal with this. I, I wanna fit in two more questions. We only have a few more minutes though, but I wanna touch on that in terms of uh, a great question from Caitlin and a similar one from Arlene. They both asked, how can you get social media corporations uh, you know, operating the platforms where online hate um, and harassment occurs? Like, how do you get them to do better? Should you know, there's some be more issues about anonymity and banning that? That's a very big question, um, but I wonder if Barbara, you can take it for a couple of minutes. Well, first, don't sell your social media company to Elon Musk. Like that is probably your first uh, line of defense is like, don't have it in the hands of just the worst individuals. Um, I just, I, I, I feel like it has to be, you know, as much as we see these, um, these spaces as, you know, these, these democratic places where free speech uh, is, is, the be all and end all, I, there has to be policing in those, in those spaces. There has to be a time when, um, when those social media companies have to take a risk, take responsibility. And once again, it's a, it's, it's a power thing. You know, when, when Saba talks about the fact that there was that, um, that the, that, that the police would not take, you know, in that would only take individual statements when we know that this is a systemic thing, um, all it takes is like, if, if the, if the police were being, um, approached from the right people, and I'm telling you, it always has to be the right people, then you know that the reaction would be different. And it's the same with the social media companies where this hate is, is, um, is able to proliferate so easily and, and to get, and harassment is rampant. So um, you know, as much as we hate to say it, we need to be on the on on the asses of our elected officials, on on um the the higher ups in every office. Um if uh Prime Minister Trudeau loves women so much, you know, we need to be banging on every door to say that this is a thing, man. Like I don't I just don't understand um why this isn't a part of the pol the po political uh, conversation because it's 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 just massive. Like, where is the freedom of press? This is not a free press at this point. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. I think there's a lot of good points in there. Um, we only have a couple more minutes, but I do want to end it on one question uh, Kelsey sent in this one. I'm going to modify it slightly, so I hope you don't mind, Kelsey. Um, I want to talk a little bit about aspiring journalists, new journalists, right? So Kelsey wants to know what drew you into journalism. Uh, Christina, I wonder if you want to take this, and, and I'll, I'll just add, would you weigh that decision differently now, considering the landscape 
that a female journalist is is getting into in terms of how much hate there is out there. I mean, things have changed so much. Yeah, I, I mean, we were talking about this this last night, and I would I do this again? I I don't know, and I and I will tell you to, to an aspiring journalist out there, like when when a story works the way you envisioned it would work, when when someone comes to you with something, their story, and it matters so much, and they give you sort of the privilege and the responsibility of escorting that out into the world, there's nothing better than that feeling when you you feel like you've, you've done a good job on it. And and I still, after all this time, haven't, haven't walked away. And so there's something that is, is keeping me here. I do hope that our newsrooms, our journalism schools, our, our mentors know how to talk about safety in a different way than, than they did when, when I was starting out, because it was just like, you, you, you just went and you, you, you did things. You, you went into places with sort of no cell phone, no support and, and, and nothing like that. And, and I think that um, if you are starting out, have your people, know your people who have your back, make sure that your editor is, is sort of looking out for you. And yeah, it, it can still really be, you know, a, a dream job when it, when it all works out. And I think there are a lot of people fighting to make sure that we can keep journalism a, a safe and, and rewarding uh, place to be. You know what, we could go on for hours on this topic. I really wish we had a little bit more time. Um, I, I think we should end it there in terms of the time because we do have to get to a video, but I want to say thank you. I think can't thank you all enough for taking the time to actually be on this panel, to, to share your experiences and to talk a little bit about solutions and a little bit about what so much more needs to be done. Um, so just the fact I think that we're having this conversation makes a difference. Uh, the fact that it's out there and talking about what needs to be done and what can be tackled. So thank you guys so much, all of you, all three of you, and thanks to everyone listening. Sorry I didn't get to everybody's question. Uh, they were really good ones. And with that, I'll pass it over to Paulette from the Canadian Women's Foundation uh, for a final thought. Hello, everyone. My name is Paulette Senior, President and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you to our amazing panelists for bravely sharing their experiences and insights. I'm appreciative of the work that diverse women and equity-seeking reporters do to tell hidden stories and expose gender injustice and human rights gaps. Your voices are needed now more than ever. You need to be free and safe to tell the stories that only you can tell. And the stories in Canadian media these days are incredible, enabling truth to be spoken to power like I've never seen. I'm particularly awed by the strong feminist journalists that are emerging today. But no one can function in a barrage of insults and harassment and abuse and threats to violence. It's not right, it's not sustainable. These things should not be seen as just part of the job. As with any form of gendered violence, stopping this abuse requires systemic change. Committed leaders need to create better policies and working conditions for their journalists. We need real consequences for abuse, harassment, and criminal behavior. And we need relevant supports for women and equity-seeking journalists 
the strength and sustainability of our media landscape requires it. And a strong media landscape is critical to our civic and democratic health. So as you continue to do your work, we'll do ours and keep pushing for change. Thank you, everyone.